everyone, and welcome to Orphan Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher, and as usual, I have with me a real pip, my co-host, Lydia. <laughs> I was waiting to be called Siren of the Seas or something <laughs> like that. A Kelpie. <laughs> Uh, you're better than a Kelpie, I think. Oh, come on. They're magical. They're like <laughs> me. They're fairies. <laughs> well, Lydia, thanks for joining me once again. Always fun to talk with you. As promised, we have a little lighter fare this month than we did last month. I think we, we had to find something a little lighter than last month. Almost anything <laughs> is lighter than last month. <laughs> want to thank our listeners for tuning in. I hope you came back after last month. You know, we got we got serious for you for a little bit there, but uh, now we're, we're back. I want to thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. I encourage you to come and join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook.com and search for Orphan Entertainment. I'd also encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, where you can see a lot of the films that we're gonna that we have discussed on the show. And usually, you can watch the film that we're gonna we're going to discuss uh, shortly before we actually discuss it. So if you have any comments or anything, get it be a chance to watch it. Any feedback or comments about the films or any of our episodes can be sent to orphanentertainment at gmail.com. I think that's got all kind of the housekeeping out of the way. So with that, I think we will take a uh, break for a, another five-minute mystery and another pro- and a promo from another podcast. And when we get back, we will discuss the 1942 British comedy, Backroom Boy. Another five-minute mystery. Black night, ain't it, Foley? Yeah. A lot better riding around this squad car than pounding the beat. Yeah, I guess it is. I remember when you and I first joined the force back in... Hey, Sullivan. What? Look there ahead. Somebody's running toward our car waving like mad. Slow down, Foley. Let's see what he's in such a hurry about. Officer! Officer! I'm so glad you happened along. Right down there. Just one more block. My fiancée. She just committed suicide. Now, how'd this all happen? Well, I'm Leon Jones, and this is... Was, I mean, my fiancé, Sally Lawrence. I just bought the ring today. Bought the ring today, huh? That's right. Here it is, even in the original box. Okay, go on. Well, tonight we took a walk after I'd given her the ring. We stopped here about the middle of the bridge and stood looking down into the water. Then what? Well, all of a sudden, Sally said she wasn't going to marry me, that she was just tired of living. She... She took off the ring I'd just given her and handed it back to me. I asked her what was the matter, what had happened. Had she ever seen down at the mouth before this? Once in a while, nothing serious. By the way, Mr. Jones, when did you put that ring back in the case? Why, I don't know. I'm afraid I have sort of an orderly type of mind. Why? Nothing, nothing at all. When you asked her what had happened, did she tell you? No, she didn't. She just turned around and started fumbling in her purse. I thought she was getting her handkerchief, but then... Then I saw the glint of light on a small bottle as she lifted it to her lips. And she collapsed, just as though she'd been hit by lightning. It was all done so fast. 
I called to her, kept speaking her name, but it was too late. Let's step over and examine the body a little closer. Ah, Sullivan, it's an open and shut case of suicide by poison. Well, maybe, maybe. Yes, there's the bottle, all right, just where it fell. Empty, too. Now, yeah, pull out the cork. See what this smells like. Hmm. Take a whiff, Foley. Stuff not shot the minute it hits your tongue. Hey. Jones said she fell over just like she'd been hit by lightning. Wait, wait a minute, Foley. That's it. This isn't suicide. This is murder. Murder by Mr. Leon Jones. So Leon Jones is a murderer. Do you know the clue that points him out? We'll hear in a moment, but first... Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Down Place is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. A port city in the Canadian province of Ontario and Canada's 10th largest city. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 1951 Down Place can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com Oh, sorry, I thought you said Hamilton. 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. And now, let's hear the solution from Police Lieutenant Sullivan. Miss Lawrence apparently refused to marry you tonight, Mr. Jones. Refused to even take the ring, is my guess. And you decided to murder her. You stated that Miss Lawrence collapsed immediately after she drank the contents of the bottle. After finding what the bottle contained, we know this is true. But tell me, Mr. Jones, if your fiancé dropped dead immediately after she drank from the bottle, then why is it I had to remove the cork before I could smell what was in the bottle? No one drinking the contents of this bottle could possibly have had time to cork it before death struck. A neat little trick, Mr. Jones, but your mind was just a little too methodical to be really clever. Come along, we've got a little trek down to headquarters. Backroom Boy is, like I said, is a British film. It was produced by Gainsborough Pictures in 1942. It was directed by Herbert Mason and stars the comedian Arthur Askey. Askey was a bit of a household name in Britain by the time he filmed Backroom Boy. He starred in several variety shows in the 30s on television and started his own show after the war called Before Your Very Eyes, which was titled after one of his catchphrases. 
during the wars when he worked the most in film, including uh, Bandwagon in 1940, which was based on one of the early variety shows of the same name, Backroom Boy here, and King Arthur Was a Gentleman in 1942. He did Miss London Limited in 1943 and Bees in Paradise in 1944. He was awarded an Officer of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, or an OBE, in 1969 and a Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, or a CBE, in 1981. ASCII continued to work until just a few months before his death in 1982. I would love to actually go back and uh, see if we can find some of his other films, because I was just reading some of the synopsis on uh, what Miss London Limited and Bees in Paradise, and I'm thinking, I think I might have to try to track him down and watch them. <laughs> they sound like they might be a lot of fun. Now, along in this film is Googie Withers. She's one of the many women in the film. She was born Georgette Withers in Karacha, British India, which is now in Pakistan. The name Googie was given to her as a nickname by her Indian nanny and means little pigeon. She started her career at 12 years old. She was a dancer in a West End production when she was offered a small role in, the, in 1935's The Girl in the Crowd. She arrived on set just as one of the lead actresses was being fired. She was spotted and given the role. (laughs) So she went from extra to third billing. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Unfortunately, however, that film is missing and believed lost. One of the victims of the war, I think. Through the 30s and 40s, she was sought after for many more lead roles, including Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes in 1938. (sighs) Great movie. <laughs> I, 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 I was pretty sure that was a film that you've brought up before. Oh, gosh, yes. Like, great movie. <laughs> By 1948, she was voted as the eighth most popular British star in the country. Mm-hmm. She continued to work in film, television, and on stage well into the 90s and in Britain, the U.S., and Australia. Withers starred on Broadway with Michael Redgrave in The Complacent Lover and in London with Alec Guinness in Exit the King. Wow. Uh, she starred in a BBC adaptation of Hotel du Lac in 1986, which was followed a year later by another BBC production of Northanger Abbey. In 89, she appeared at Brighton in England in the Cocktail Hour alongside her husband John McCallum and her daughter Joanna. And her last screen performance was as the Australian novelist Catherine Pritchard in the film Shine in 1996 which starred Academy Award-winning Jeffrey Rush as pianist uh, David mm-hmm. uh, Helfgott, uh, a man who suffered a mental breakdown and spent many years in institutions. Another upbeat film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, not to be seen here on North Entertainment anytime <laughs> soon. No. <laughs> now, the last thing I have here is Vera Francis, who plays the young Jane in the film Backroom Boy. This was her first film appearance. She would go on to appear uh, in King Arthur Was a Gentleman alongside uh, Arthur Askey once again. And she only acted for a few more years. She did, I think, uh, four more films. uh, No, sorry, five more films, I think. Five or six. uh, Before deciding to follow the dream of being a dance instructor. This decision paid off pretty well, apparently, because she... uh, started a dance school with, uh, with that bears her name and that school is in still operation to this day and she yeah. is still running it. <laughs> so <laughs> That is really cool. That is very cool. It's very awesome. So I guess we should get into the synopsis a little bit of the film. I'm ready to go. All right. 
Well, Backroom Boy, okay. The film opens up with a, uh, a young woman working in a newsroom of some, of some type. I believe it was like a radio uh, newsroom. And she's given some fresh stories and told to take them into the studio. Well, after freshening up her makeup, she heads in, and as she passes off the pieces of paper, uh, we learn about a staff dance and that is happening that night. I wonder if there are many people at the staff dance tonight. You know, I can't make up my mind whether I should go or not. Well, I've got an appointment at seven, but if you'd like me to fill in the breach after that, I should be delighted. Oh, it's not that, Mr. Ravel. I've, I've got a partner, only he can't get there till after eleven. His work keeps him late. He sounds busy. What's his line? Oh, I don't know that I should say. It's a job of national importance. Oh, backroom boy. Yes, I suppose you would call him that. Arthur's the only person in England doing it. In a way, millions all over the world are depending on him. It sounds terribly important. Oh, he is. Terribly important. Well, we next meet Arthur, as he is hurriedly exiting a taxi he enters a building goes through many halls elevators and eventually into a fancy office and there he dons white gloves and a like a lab coat he's offered up a key to or offers up a key to an assistant who unlocks an ornate cabinet a small control panel slides out arthur watches the clock and then he pushes a button creating short dings or pips on the last six seconds of the hour stand by please I, I try to go to movies not knowing anything about it. So it's worth mo- noting that Arsky is a very short man. <laughs> yes. <she's- laughs> and so he comes marching in and all the guys that he's passing are so much taller than him. And I just wasn't expecting him to be the main character. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I was just, you know, so of course, the, you know, the girl talks about him briefly. You kind of pick up that he's the fiance. But then it turned out that he was also the main character. And I was just surprised. He is a very diminutive uh, man, <laughs> very slight, very small, very short, and uh, just kind of comical looking. He's just one of those guys you kind of look at, and he just sort of makes you smile. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. And they play on his height throughout the whole thing. It's pretty funny. Yes, they do. Now, this Pip thing, just to explain a little bit, this was actually the, um, I think he was working at the Greenwich Observatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was run, I, I guess, might have been actually run or was a part of the BBC. And what mm-hmm. would they would do? Although it was never actually a person in a room uh, tapping out the pips, this has been going on for an incredibly long amount of time. And this signal was sent out to allow other observatories and networks and stations to sort of uh, sync their clocks to make sure that they are on with the same time as everybody else. Uh, it's been, I think, electronic and digitized for even before this film was made, but it, it is rather comical to think that there was some guy that has to sit there and rush in every hour. <laughs> every hour. <laughs> so, it, and before they show him, uh, you know, and his uh, fiance is talking about him and she's not sure what he can do. And the guy she's talking to, who by the way has a malicious voice, absolutely fantastic voice. The second good time for, I heard good him. Good for radio. Surprised. Yeah, it's perfect for radio. And, uh, okay. So I did uh, take a second and look up Backroom Boy, because it is. I assumed it was kind of an inside joke kind of thing, uh, inside phrasing. So it sort of becomes apparent. But at one point, when his fiance goes back to talk to the guy in the radio, in the studio, uh, he he says, "Oh, so your fiance is kind of a backroom boy." So of course I have to look it up. And basically, it could mean a few different things. It could be either like a guy that works like in the back rooms in a lab and a chemistry state in a chemistry station, or it could also be kind of a, in this area, it could have been a spy. So, uh, 
the the title of it's a bit tongue in cheek because he seems like you know, she talks about him as being this really important guy, and he goes back and literally pushes a button. <laughs> so, uh, so I had to look that up, just throwing that in there real quick, just to give you guys a little bit of a an elbow in on the joke. Yeah, I, I believe I took it as just kind of meaning just somebody that is does an important duty, but it's not something that you you see on the outside. He's just behind the scenes kind of thing. Which I think is a pretty pretty close explanation here. Where after he does all this, I think what, what's hysterical, he does his little buttons, you know, he's got his white glove. As soon as he's done with the, with this little task, he pulls off the white gloves, disposes them, takes off his coat, puts his sport, <laughs> puts his jacket back on and leaves the room. That's it. <laughs> yeah, literally six seconds. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Arthur arrives by taxi to the dance, and he tells the taxi to wait. He has to be back to the office by midnight. After working out exactly when he will have to leave. 29 when, minutes and three quarters. Then, then <laughs> it's 45 seconds. 29 and three quarters minutes before midnight. Exactly. <laughs> well, he, after working that out, he quickly he heads into the dance. After finding Betty, his date, uh, but explaining that he's only got a few minutes, Betty has hadly, or finally had enough and breaks off their engagement. Arthur, wanting to stay and try to explain it to her and everything, he, he just can't. You know, if it was if it was the 10 p.m. or 11, but this is the midnight pips. He can't <laughs> let this go. So Arthur rushes back and once again goes to the corridors to his office. This time, however... He throws the white coat in the trash can, slams the cabinet open, and on the six seconds, taps out, shave and a haircut. (laughs) (laughs) That was kind of (laughs) cute. The next day, Arthur finds himself facing, uh, I guess, the uh, board of department heads of the Greenwich Observatory. They are reading several complaints about the levity displayed with the midnight pips. (laughs) I love the... The distinction here between the Brits and the Americans, too. The Brits are all, say there, old boy, do you think you could not so, you know, <laughs> so much humor on the pips? And the Americans are just like, hey, leave off with the weird pips, guys. Yeah. <laughs> the British are so polite, and the Americans are like, cut it out. <laughs> well, Arthur shows no regrets and is fed up with this job. I wish you could feel sorry about it, sir, but I don't. You don't? Oh, Mr. Philbin, will you come up here? Do you realize what you're saying? I do. And I'm fed up with the whole thing. When I came here, I was full of ambition. I learned astronomy, geometry, trigonometry, and every other blinkingometry. And what for? Just to pop in and out of a little back room and pip. You hold a very responsible position, if I may say so. Well, I'd rather not hold it. If I take my girl to the pictures, I always have to come out before it's finished. If I take it out to supper, I never get beyond the soup. If we go for a little cuddle in the park, I... <clears throat> oh, well, perhaps that wouldn't interest you, gentlemen. But you must expect to make some sacrifice to duty. I have, and what's happened? She sacrificed me. She's given me my ring back and gone after some other bloke. Well, well, there are just as good fish. But I don't want to marry a fish. I want to resign. I want to go on a submarine or a minesweeper or some place where men are men and women are just pictures cut out of magazines. The board decides that they can't leave him at his current post. I mean, what what other ditties will he tap out that night? <laughs> so they decide to reassign him. And there's an opening in the meteorological department uh, to man a desolate and uh, and remote lighthouse that is being changed over to a weather reporting station. It's worth mentioning that Arthur during this time says that he refuses to work near any woman. Yeah, I kind of I kind of left out the whole 
uh, the whole part where there's kind of the whole gist of the movie is that he doesn't <laughs> want to work with any, he doesn't want to be anywhere where there's any women. It kind of that's kind of important later on. <laughs> Well, sometime later, Arthur arrives in a Scottish town where he'll be staying until morning. And, of course, he can't understand a thing anyone is saying. <laughs> and neither could I. I kept trying to make some of it out. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of it was per- was purposely uh, just gibberish. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When they were actually trying to say something, I was trying to make out exactly what it was that people were saying. And I even I had a hard time. Well, the locals crowd around Arthur as the to, as the innkeeper explains that they want to get a last look at him. No telling when he'll return. And he says, oh, I'll be back on the first of the month. <laughs> yes, exactly. Arthur says he'll be back. But the innkeeper says, well, well, weather and Brunhilde willing. <laughs> Brunhilde is apparently the local Kelpie or spirit that gives them their bad weather. I like Arthur's response. Well, keep to your Brunhilde, and I'll keep to my barometer. Barometer. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of that kind of quick little wit thrown in throughout this whole movie. I think my uh, my favorite character through this scene is the one old sailor. What all? His only responses to everything is I, I, I. Well, Arthur heads to his room, uh, and the innkeeper points out the uh, grand bed that his wife, his mother, her grandmother, and her mother all died in. (laughs) I love he says, do you think you've got anything smaller? (laughs) (laughs) Arthur asks about a small bed that's kind of inset into the wall. And the innkeeper tells him that's where the dog sleeps. And Arthur says, well, put the dog in the the morgue. I'll sleep here. (laughs) (laughs) Arthur starts to undress uh, when suddenly a young girl comes into the room. Uh, She goes about putting a bed warmer in under the covers of the large bed and then leaves with a, uh, I love the the, the Scottish ditty that starts playing as soon as she enters the room and then stops (laughs) as soon as she closes the door. Well, Arthur locks the door after she leaves, but then she comes in through another door to fill the wash bowl. Again, Diddy starts up and then turns off as she leaves. <laughs> through a different door. Through a different, through a third door, <laughs> which then Arthur locks. And then she enters again uh, through another door with fresh towels and exits through apparently a fourth door. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of this kind of physical humor in it. It's not slapstick, but there's definitely, you know, it's just kind of little nudges at Arthur throughout the whole thing. <laughs> exactly. Well, the next morning, Arthur is uh, booting out to the island. They have to go very early, and then they the guy can't stay because apparently they only get about four hours of sunlight <laughs> at this time of year. <laughs> the sailor piloting the boat tells him that Arthur will be alone, and he'll go mad. They all do. First, you'll start talking to yourself. <laughs> and I love the part where the uh, he has the boatman. He says, uh, what, what's the population of the island? And the boatman goes, you. <laughs> <laughs> The one person, apparently. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think he starts, this is the point where he starts saying, you know, that, the oh, the Kelpie comes to Kelpie Rock and, you know, he's and the boatmen seen men disappear. And uh, and Arthur says, well, she, she can keep to her rock, keep to mine. And he says, well, which one's Kelpie Rock? And he points, at, and the boatman points at the one with the lighthouse. On yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, once at the dock, Arthur makes sure that all his baggage is accounted for and counts it off. I think he counts looking for like uh, seven uh six or seven individual parcels or, or items and uh, notices uh, one's 
the one's missing. It was like, oh, is this it? It's this alarm clock. He's oh, yeah, it can't be out my alarm clock. Then it promptly drops it into the water. <laughs> he tells him, well, now I have to go uh, waiting for it. The sailor tells him, we're 40,000 fathoms deep. I love Arthur's at low uh, tide. At low tide, <laughs> and Arthur tries to figure it out. Let's see, forty thousands of fathoms six is, is what six foot. So that's uh, one and a half Arthur's, or, or, <laughs> or one half of an Arthur, or something. I forget was uh, his math, but it was pretty funny. Well, the sailor heads off without uh, showing Arthur around or anything, because uh, he only got the the few hours of daylight. He wants to make sure he gets back before uh, before it gets dark. <laughs> But when Arthur returns to his luggage, he finds that two uh, of his packages are, are missing. He, he calls out to the boat to see if he, if he might have taken them, which, of course, the guy didn't. Nay, nay. Nay. Why, <laughs> <laughs> why? Nay, nay. <laughs> well, uh, when Arthur turns back around, two more of his things are gone. <laughs> Well, he grabs what is left and heads up to the lighthouse. Including a bicycle, which I love. Yes, he's got a bicycle and a, and a golf bag. Literally on a rock with, with, a, with a tower on it, a lighthouse yeah. on it. And a bicycle. Where's he going to hide it to? Well, the lighthouse is, of course, creepy and unkept. Uh, Marth, Arthur makes his way around. Uh, first, they, they do the little gag with he's got the giant key to unlock the door. <laughs> and he's, he's trying to get the key to turn this giant lock on this door. He leans against the door and the door opens with the lock <laughs> still hanging on. The... <laughs> Arthur makes his way to the main living area, looking around and passing through the kitchen and then up to the bedroom. When he finally returns to the main room, he finds all his luggage, all his missing luggage is there <laughs> in the room. Well, now that he has all his stuff, including some provisions, he sets about making some bacon and eggs for lunch. He can't find his matches, of course, because he uh, left them in his coat up there in the bedroom. So he heads up to retrieve them and discovers that the previously unmade bed is now made. (laughs) I should point out, too, that he starts talking to himself almost immediately of entering the lighthouse. (laughs) After after the sailor told him that, you know, Arthur... (laughs) Mr. Pilbeam, he said you'd go crazy. That's true, he did. <laughs> I love it, and he calls himself Arthur, and yes. he calls himself, is it Pilbeam or Pilbeam? Yeah, oh, Pilbeam, yep. yep. <laughs> and then he says, Arthur, yes, Mr. Pilbeam. <laughs> that bed wasn't made before, was it? No, Mr. Pilbeam. <laughs> <laughs> well, back to the kitchen with the matches, but when he gets to the kitchen, he finds his bacon and eggs already frying in a lit uh, stove. Deciding the best thing to do is ignore everything and eat his meal while you can, <laughs> he dishes it out onto a plate and sits down at a nicely set table that was also not there before. <laughs> well, noise in the kitchen kind of stops him eating, and suddenly the same young girl from the end walks in, <laughs> and she sets about serving him some tea. She apparently stowed away to get to the island because she wants to see her uncle, who happens to live on the island next door. Well, this is Jane, by the way. I, I don't think I've mentioned her name before. I think she, this is where she introduces herself. Possibly. I don't know if I was wondering when they actually introduced uh, anybody in this. I think suddenly <laughs> that everyone has names without anyone actually ever introducing themselves. Well, after Jane and Arthur eat their meal, Arthur gets sets about getting his radio t- together to send his first weather report. Jane tells him that they're in for a storm because the gulls are flying in circles. Arthur insists that his equipment says they will have a calm and quiet night. 
<laughs> Guess which one's right. <laughs> I, yeah. That night, uh, Jane heads to bed, but Arthur tries to convince her to stay up as, you know, as a special treat. Are you sure you've got to go to bed now? I'm always in bed by nine. Yes, but as a special treat, wouldn't you like to come downstairs and let me read a book to you? I thought you liked it, women. So I do, but I thought perhaps you'd like a bit of company. Why? Well, I mean, a kid like you in a place like this, and a night like this. What's wrong with it? Aren't you afraid of thunder? Of course not. Well, I'm going to bed now. Good night. Wait a minute. Wouldn't you like to leave the door open in case you want to call me? I'm beginning to think it's not only the weather that's wet and windy. <laughs> I, I love that line in here when, yeah, when he's trying to convince her to stay up. It's obvious that he wants her to stay up because he's the one that's a little freaked out and scared. It's her, her line. I don't think the weather's the only thing wet and windy. <laughs> I just, I just to say right now, I freaking loved Jane in this film. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> she has, uh, she's about twelve years old. The actress is twelve years old at this film. This is her first film. She has incredible comedic timing. She does. And just the way her, she holds herself, her attitude, it's really a lot of fun. Yeah, even the way she her voice at times she just she seems so mature beyond her yes. years sometimes <laughs> well uh jane sends arthur up to see what the wind is banging around upstairs uh, there's a noise going on and so you know he he goes to try to get her to like no you go i'm going to bed <laughs> well he finds the door to the exterior walkway up in the lighthouse open and as he tries to close it he hears what sounds like a woman calling for help he looks out, and down on the rocks, Arthur sees what appears to be a woman. Or is it a mermaid? <laughs> it could be Brunhilde. <laughs> well, Arthur runs down the stairs, bolts his door, and hides under a table. After a while, he hears the main door open and something coming up the stairs. You can hear a, a woman's moaning, as, and then you see water seeping from under the locked door. Finally working up the courage, he opens the door and finds seaweed on the steps. I love how he talks himself up. At this yeah. <laughs> he says, now, Arthur, you open that door. <laughs> now, <you know> <laughs> well, he follows the trail of water and seaweed up the stairs to his bedroom. In his bed, by the light of his lamp, he sees what appears to be fish scales. And out of this bed jumps a woman in an evening gown. <laughs> It's actually a fairly well-edited and, and well-directed scene right there because it, it is almost, I mean, it's a comedy and everything, but it's almost a really good legitimate jump scare. <laughs> it, and, and the way that they have her dressed, she looks like a mermaid. I love it. Because especially with the black and white, it's really hard to see that she's wearing an evening gown in her scales. They did a great job with it. Yes, they did. Well, she's disorientated, but eventually remembers that her ship was torpedoed. <laughs> she says, I was torpedoed. And he says, well, I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I said, and we used to think old movies were so. Mean. Oh, yeah. There's a there's a there's quite a lot of they were just really good at the innuendo. I think they oh, yes, yes. nowadays they just say it right outright. And, and these days in these films, it's just innuendo. And they couldn't say it back then. But that's what makes it all the more humorous when you catch on. Exactly. Arthur goes to get her something dry to put on, and she laments seeing all of them, quote-unquote, sinking to the bottom of the sea in a trunk. All, 
all those beautiful gowns. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out she was part of a modeling group heading to South America to, to a fashion exhibit in Rio. Well, while the woman dries off, Arthur, dis- Arthur discovers that his ra- oh, actually, I should mention the uh, <laughs> before I get into that when she's explaining that she was a a group of mannequins as they were called then, mm-hmm. and and now they've lost all those gowns. We have nothing to exhibit, and he kind of that's at that point it's when he kind of takes that peek over his shoulder while she's changing. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> While she finishes drying off, Arthur discovers that his radio has gone missing. While she starts to help him look for it, Anne opens a closet door, only to find a man tied and gagged. She screams and slams the door and runs to Arthur. Arthur reluctantly opens the door, but only finds empty coats. Deciding that she was just seeing things, Arthur finally gets her to go to her room and get some sleep. The next morning, while shaving, Arthur uh, finds himself talking to himself and wondering how he's going to explain to Jane this strange woman that slept in his bed last night. <laughs> I love this little conversation with himself again. He says, uh, he says, Arthur, did a young lady call here last night or was it a nightmare? And he says, yes, sir, a young lady did call here last night and it was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Well, over breakfast, he nervously tries to, um, using the legend of the mermaid as an opener, uh, explain to Jane what was what went on. Morning, Jane. How many sausages can you eat? Oh, I'm not very hungry this morning. I didn't sleep very well. Uh, did you have a good night? Yes. Why? Oh, nothing. That's the butter knife. What's the matter with you this morning? Uh, tell me, Jane. Do you believe in ghosts and things? Why? Oh, nothing. Only you know, there's a story about this place, don't you? Is it a rude one? Oh no, it's a legend, a sort of folk story. Oh, a fairy tale. That's right. Yeah, at once upon a time, there was a dreadful storm, and the lighthouse keeper looked out of his window, and there on the rocks below, he saw a beautiful mermaid called Brunhilde. How did you know her name was Brunhilde? We'll pass that. Uh, now, listen, Jane, I want you to listen very carefully. I don't want you to misunderstand me, but last night, after you went to bed, I looked out of my window, and there on the rocks below, I saw Beautiful Skip mer- it, I've taken her up a cup of tea. Yes. You've done what? I've taken your bird up a cup of tea. You know all about her? Brunilda. I hope you're not suggesting I'm not telling you the truth. Listen, we had a gentleman lodger staying with us at Lambert, and he told me a story just like that. But his wasn't Brunilda, it was Bertha, and she wasn't a mermaid, she was a barmaid. Well, Bobby, in case anyone hasn't mentioned her name yet, because again... I don't remember anybody introducing themselves, but... I don't either. <laughs> I know that later on they say your name, but up to this point, I think I know it either. Nope. Well, Bobby comes in uh, wearing a slip and a robe, uh, an open robe, I should say. <laughs> Bobby says that she isn't feeling too well on account of what happened last night. <laughs> Jane tries to excuse herself, but Arthur pulls her back into her seat, explaining that Bobby thought she saw a man in the cupboard. Jane's reply... I bet she was a little disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of those scenes where it just seems far beyond her years. Yes, Jane has some (laughs) wonderful uh, digs at Arthur. Really good. (laughs) Well, Bobby goes off to try and find an iron for her dress, and Jane and Arthur go to find Jane's uncle. Jane and Arthur make it to the island next door via a ropey rope bridge. And they find Mr. Mason and introduce themselves. 
Jane asks about the money that he owes her aunt, and the uncle says that as soon as he repairs his boat, he'll send it off. Well, Jane and Arthur return to the lighthouse just in time to hear, again, they have to get humped back before it gets dark, of course. <laughs> they get back to the lighthouse just in time to hear a scream and a thud coming from, from inside. And once inside, they find Bobby fainted on the floor. Jane says she knows how to bring, bring her around, and Arthur runs to get some water. Then Jane proceeds to straddle Bobby, remove her gloves, and start slapping her. <laughs> it's, it's Jane. I just love Jane. Uh, <laughs> She's hilarious. <laughs> Arthur stops Jane and sprinkles some water on Bobby's face. Uh, she starts to come true, uh, come to, so Jane takes the pail of water and then dumps it over Bobby. Oh, is he gone? I'm still here. No, not you, the man. The man? Oh, the man in the cupboard. Oh, Scotty Motion. He crept up behind me and... Oh, don't worry. There's no man here. You said it. You, you said, said it. it. <laughs> I love that. She just, honestly, this... Oh, gosh, yeah. Oh, yes. She's brilliant. <laughs> she's so dry. <laughs> well, Bobby uh, gets fairly hysterical and runs off. Arthur gets a bit cross with Jane for slapping Bobby around and tells her that she doesn't know how to treat a lady. Jane gets upset for the way Arthur has been treating her, and she runs off crying. Arthur, fed up with women, again, even, even, yeah, <laughs> even more so than before, goes about looking for the radio so he can finally be rid of them. He starts tearing apart the lighthouse. While searching, he finds some distress rockets, figuring that if anyone's in distress, it's him. He grabs a couple, and he sets one up outside. And when he sets down his oil lamp so he can light the fuse, uh, the lamp unfortunately sets off the other rocket, which flies into an open window of the lighthouse. The flashes from the window and the other rocket actually launching attracts the attention of a boat. Arthur, thinking that he's saved, rushes to the dock to meet it. To his dismay, the boat is full of more women. It's the other members of the modeling troupe. <laughs> They escaped their ship sinking and only just made it to the island as their uh, dinghy quickly sinks right there at the dock. The women and the two sailors that accompanied them, they head to the lighthouse and they dig into some food and start drying themselves off. Arthur, meanwhile, uh, ties, I guess this was maybe a short time after. It was, I, I get the impression there might have been a little bit of a time jump. Or maybe it's just Arthur needed to escape the room full of women, so he went downstairs. <laughs> and he starts tying some SOS notes to some balloons to try and get some help. <laughs> One is apparently discovered, and the information is passed on to the Coast Guard. Sometime later, a plane drop flies over and drops off some supplies, and a note that says that a rescue ship will be there to pick him up the following day. Arthur leaves Jane to watch over the stuff while he goes to get help carrying it all back. After he leaves, one of the women, this is Brenda, apparently, notices a boat in a cave down by the, uh, by the seashore, uh, in a, a cave in the, in the cliff of this island, and she points it out to Jane. A short time later, when Arthur and the group return, they find that the supplies, Jane and Brenda, are missing. They spot the cave, but the boat's nowhere to be seen. Thinking maybe they went to see Jane's uncle, they all head over to find that his hut has been ransacked, but there's a lit cigarette burning and the kettle and the kettle boiling. One of the sailors suggests that this might be like the Mary Celeste. 
Well, they all head back to the lighthouse before it gets dark. As they go across the bridge, Arthur counts off everyone to make sure they don't lose anyone else. There should be 11, counting himself. Well, when he's done counting as they all go across the bridge, he ends up being number 12. They all make it back to the lighthouse, and they count off again, but find there is only 10. And honestly, I'm actually going to stop the synopsis here. We've always said when we discuss comedy that comedy is very difficult to discuss and describe. And from this point on, it gets the, the pace picks up a little bit. It gets a little more madcap. And I'm thinking there's no way I'm going to be able to describe this that doesn't sound absolutely boring. <laughs> <laughs> so up to this point it's been pretty comedic but at this point but here it starts getting more suspenseful as you know people start appearing and disappearing and then disappearing more <laughs> and uh it, it becomes apparent that either some kind of a threat on the island or it's actually possible that arthur long ago begun talking to himself is going crazy yes <laughs> Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. there's a great little bit. They do a nice job of it turning it into a, a mystery comedy, where before it was just all comedy, and then suddenly it turns into this weird mystery. And it's actually it's actually fairly good at the, at the mystery bit, too. And then and then in the end, it's a little bit like, uh, if you ever see a Mad, 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 Mad World, it's a really <laughs> great comedy. In the end, it goes completely apeshit. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel. This is kind of like a toned-down version of that. Mm-hmm. Still incredibly enjoyable. Again, I think Jane is the highlight. I, I just can't believe that this is her first film, that she has such talent at this young of an age. And then to think that she only goes on to do a few more films and then quits. And it's like, I'm kind of sorry she did, because I would love to see her in more stuff. Yeah, she's really phenomenal in this. It's interesting because through this thing, you know, Arthur's kind of here because his fiance was done with him, um, and you know, and, and he's on this island with all these models. But ultimately, really, the relationship that's interesting in the story is between him and Jane. him and Jane. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and mainly because she, I mean, they're almost. He's obviously much older. He's, I think, the as an actor, he's in his forties. And she's mm-hmm. 12 years old. But, right. <laughs> but but because of the type of man he is and everything, they're kind of equals. Because mm-hmm. she is so wise beyond her years, and he is so childish, they kind of mm-hmm. even out somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, it is so much, oh, that you said it. That yeah. actually, I think that was actually. <laughs> There's a, no man here. You said it. <laughs> that, that was actually a laugh out loud moment for me. That, mm-hmm. that, that was the way she delivered it. And it just came out of kind of, kind of, out of left field. I was like, that's just brilliant. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I ended up, I think I was expecting to like this film okay. I think I ended up enjoying it a little bit more than I thought I would. Just because <laughs> of some of the characters that are in it. Certainly because of Jane. I even actually, mm-hmm. I was a little worried because anytime you see these films that are sort of wrapped around a comedian, well, much like what was the one that we watched? Um, is it Just Imagine? Mm-hmm. 1930, Just Imagine. Yeah, where the whole film is kind of wrapped around this guy's shtick, it really wears thin. You know, I didn't, mm-hmm. I think it could have been a better film had it not, had that not been the case. Well, that's true even today. Sure. You oh, know, even modern even modern writers, modern writers as well, really struggle with that. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of expecting when I started reading a little bit of Wikipedia that, oh, this was a comedian and the, the, the film are like, oh, is it going to be another one of those? And it really was. I think it actually really works well 
he he does a great job with it. They don't. There are he throws out a few of his catchphrases. There's like the oh, thank you. Uh, he throws out maybe I don't know if he does the uh, before your very eyes line but in in research after the fact I discovered that oh yeah there probably was a couple where he threw out one of his one or two of his catchphrases but it wasn't all wrapped around that right and and, and, well and it's not over the top it's uh, I mean there's certainly silly stuff that happens in it but it's not you you don't ever get that deus machina moment where something just totally unplausible out of left field hits it right but but nothing happens in it that's really implausible yes there's you know it's all very timely around the era that it was made and certainly where you know politically where things were going and during world war ii and all of that but there's never anything in it that is just so silly that it's just not believable right yeah so jane is fantastic arthur actually ends up being incredibly enjoyable to watch uh, I even uh, Bobby does a pretty good job. She's got some pretty. I uh, tell where people were kind of looking for her to star in the film. I think she's definitely got some chops. There's some real subtle moments where it's just the expression on her face or her body language that just really mm-hmm. works well for a particular scene. And even some of the really minor characters that the sailor, oi, oi, <laughs> is just it, it. It makes you laugh, you know. And, it- the two sailors that come on to uh, with the with the boat with the ladies in it, and I think that older guy's name is Jerry, and you'll recognize him if you've seen the old movies. He's been in stuff. I think mm-hmm. he was in like 130 different titles. <laughs> um, more Marriott is his name, but he he's another one too where he's just he's not over the top, but he's just this funny old sailor that goes around, you know, kind of trying to sneak looks at the girl, changing oh, yeah, and that kind of thing. And but he's so funny, you know, without over the top. It's the Mary Celeste. Yep. <laughs> the berries. But um but yeah, uh yeah, it was actually just a really enjoyable film. And it may actually be one that I go back and just watch just for the heck of it, just if I have nothing else to do. And I was gonna say if I don't have anything else to watch, but that doesn't happen very often for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well and and as you mentioned, I mean it would be worth it going back again just to it, even the second time I watched it, you know, you always pick up more things when you watch it again and again. So it'd be fun to and see what what we missed where the little digs are sure yeah things yeah this is another one of those films that i would i wish would get a little bit more respect kind of thing and get a really nice like cleaned up blu-ray or something you know they they find the 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 original prints and do the big fancy (laughs) criterion edition or something like that yeah because it would be it would be really neat to see this in a real sharp with a good soundtrack it would and it's 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 worth pointing out that the version that we have posted is not bad. Um, there is some issue with, you know, mouth movement versus, you know, what they're saying at the time. It's not horrible throughout the whole thing. But, yeah, it would definitely be one that would be fun to, you know, have a lazy day. Yeah. Well, I don't have anything else to say about it. Do you want to put some ratings on it? I think we do that. All right. I think I would come in easily with a good solid three. Which is kind of, you know, it's it, it's a lot of fun. It's enjoyable. Um, but there's nothing particularly fantastic outside of maybe uh, Jane. <laughs> but uh, I'd be I'd be comfortable with a good solid three. Well, I, I would say as a slice of history, as um, some good dialogue and good solid British directing, which, you know, um, we all know my opinion on British film. Uh, I, I would give it a four. 
I'm really happy with it. I think it gives you some twists aren't expecting it's not just you know a typical story where oh guy goes out on the island and meets a girl and they fall in love uh i appreciated that you know the girl that is jane and she's 12 you know so it's not (laughs) it's not that standard romance and it's not that standard romantic comedy but the relationship i think is unique enough that i'd I'd be very happy giving it a four all right fantastic but i think you know aside from that yeah there's not anything just spectacular in the direction, but it's worth mentioning. They must have built this lighthouse to shoot this film mm. um, because the set is so, well, I, you know, they, they could have broken it up in different places, but just the angles that they shoot from where he's going up the stairs, it, I, I have to think it's a closed set. I can't, you know, so for, from that perspective, if that was specifically built for the set, it's actually pretty impressive for yeah. them to have built those separate rooms out to make it, and it would, they would have had to have done just because they wouldn't have the space inside of a regular lighthouse. Yeah, that's true. No, it has, <laughs> to be, it has to be studio sets and just has to be like three or four rooms laid side to side with the stairs going up. So there had to be yeah. the, the poor actors having to like climb a bunch of stairs. <laughs> okay, come back down the stairs and go in the other room uh, a, and, and then pretend yeah. you're coming up the stairs. Yeah. Yeah. And then they would the dock so i mean there's a fairly elaborate set going into this um it's it's a current time to when it was being filmed so there's not any especially amazing costuming in it but as you pointed out there's some musical cues in it that are very funny mm-hmm. and that definitely add to it um the dialogue we've already talked about and i don't think there's anybody in the movie that is just severely miscast i can't think of anybody at all actually no so I, I'm, I'm very happy giving it a four for all of those reasons. I would love to give it a five, um, but, it, you know, as we said, there's nothing. I, I don't, I, I guess it's, I'm kind of talking myself into a five. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah, actually, when you start pointing out, four, <laughs> yeah, yeah, when you start pointing out all the, the, the sets and everything like that, I, I sit here and think, well, maybe I should maybe bump mine up a little. <laughs> So yeah, a three think, or a four. I, I, yeah. it's, a, it's a recommended viewing either way. Definitely. Definitely. And there's just so much, even even knowing some of the lines that are coming before you, you know, obviously if you're listening to this, you're hearing some of the lines, hopefully you already watched it. If you haven't, you're not going to miss out on anything. It's just so, it's so entertaining to watch them deliver it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it's, it's really rare uh, that we get a chance to communicate or, 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 well, speak to or communicate with anyone involved with any of the films we cover because because of the age of the film. I mean, it's only happened once before when I, I got a chance to interview Jack Betts from the, the Bloody Brood, which we covered way back when. I think it's been a couple years ago now. Well, this film, we got lucky again, Lydia. <laughs> <laughs> Vera Francis, who played young Jane, which I think we agreed is like our favorite character in this Definitely. film. Definitely. Vera Francis is still with us. She is still going strong. She is still running her dance school over in England. Uh, she's now Vera Ward. It's one of the reasons uh, you know she got she got married shortly after she left film and after she started uh, doing her dance thing. Well, I reached out. I found out you know her school of course has a website. It had a contact email, and so I thought, all right, what the heck? I'll I'll, I'll see if if I get an answer. So I sent an email and I did. She replied back (laughs) and she offered to, uh, I asked her just a couple, if she just had any thoughts or, or, or anything about the film, you know, just something in general. And she's like, that's a little open. And it's like, why don't you send me some questions and I'll try to answer them in the next few days and I'll, I'll send them back to you. I'm like, all right, great. So I typed out a few quick questions and sent them off. She sent them back. Uh, and it's really exciting. It's so, 
glad I'm really happy that she did this for him. It's, it's kind of really stoked. <laughs> But uh, tell you what, I'll I'll read the questions and just so we keep uh, you know just like as if you you can channel your inner Jane, and uh, <laughs> and you can read the answers. How's that? I'll do my best. Alrighty, so here we go from uh, Vera Ward, uh, previously of uh, what do you how do you say that? N e n a nay nee nay <laughs> nay uh, Vera Francis. I asked you the first question I asked was that you were you were about twelve years old during the filming of Backroom Boy. How did you get involved in film? Was your family performers or in the business that led you to film? My family were not in show business, but my father had for many years worked as a props maker at the Gaumont British Film Studios in Shepherd's Bush. The studio had been searching for a girl to play the role of Jane unsuccessfully, and my father was asked if he would like to bring me to one of the auditions as I was the right age. Clearly, they liked me as I was given the part. Yeah, that's so cool. How do you like that? Just, just It was kind of just by happenstance. Exactly. Sounded like it. Yeah. <laughs> well, then I asked her, uh, Arthur Askey was a well-known comedian and already done several films and was well-known name uh, through television. I asked, were you aware of Mr. Askey and how was he to work with in this film? And was it by chance that you'd go on to appear with him again in King Arthur Was a Gentleman that same year? And she says... Yes, I was aware of who he was, having heard his program, Bandwagon, on the radio. He was a charming, unassuming man, great to work with, always kind and helpful. And no, it was not by chance that I did King Arthur with him, but by direct invitation from Arthur himself. Uh, that doesn't surprise me at all, because you could tell those two worked together and enjoyed each other's company. He, he definitely liked her, and I think she liked him, because they played off each other so well. They did. They talk a lot about chemistry when they're uh, casting for various movies, all the way from Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn up to, you know, now you get Tom Hanks and um, Blondie. What's her face? But you know, <laughs> Meg, Ryan. Meg Ryan would be so mad at me. <laughs> but, but they do. You know, they talk about that a lot. And I think that's this is such a great example of great chemistry between two people. Absolutely. Well, I had to ask her about Googie Withers, who played the first rescued mannequin. I think her name was Bobby. She, I'd said that she was even more well-known in film than ASCII. And what was it like being 12-year-old freshman actress surrounded by all this experienced talent? And were you treated well? She says, I do not consider that she was more famous than Arthur at that time. He was such an established artist from music hall and radio, though she certainly was a rising star. She was, like Arthur, very kind to me, especially in one scene where I had to slap her in the face. <laughs> in fact, the whole cast treated me with kindness and respect. I was simply one of them. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I guess it just depends on um, how you look at it. Maybe she wasn't as well-known as or a, a household name like maybe Arthur was, but I, she was definitely more experienced in the film and the, and I think even had been award-winning by the time she did Background Boy. Yeah. So. Well, and if you think about it a little bit, too, at this point, um, a 12-year-old may not have been as aware of her as perhaps a, a young man might have been. <laughs> yeah, possibly, possibly. And just the fact that because Arthur had that show on the radio, so it was something that was the whole family could kind of sit around and, and, mm -hmm. and listen to. And I was going to say, and watch. Can't watch in the radio. Yeah. <laughs> you can watch the radio. Yeah. It's not very exciting. <laughs> Well, next I asked, and this this one's kind of fun, I thought. Uh, her answer is fun anyway. Uh, I said, your character of Jane was very wise, but smart mouth girl with plenty attitude. How much of the Jane was from the writing and Herbert Mason's direction? And how much came from a young Vera Francis? Were you that precocious? 
She says, no, I was not precocious. Far from it. When I started filming, my parents gave me one piece of advice to treat this as a job of work and to always be myself. I never forgot that, which is probably why I was treated so well by those established actors. I did exactly what I was asked by the director to the best of my ability. And I'm happy to know that the character of Jane came across so well and that I'd done a good job. That's pretty cool. I mean, that just kind of goes to the show about the, um, a, the writing and the directing of the film, but then kind of her sort of natural talent to not really have any experience going into this and still come across as if this was her. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's probably a good thing that that wasn't her. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So finally, I asked, you left acting after about six years and as many films. I'm assuming that dance was an interest and something you were involved in this whole time. What made you decide to focus your attention to that rather than continuing a film career? From the age of five, I decided to be a dance teacher, an ambition that stayed with me. I'd continued my training throughout the years of film and stage work. When I was 16, I was no longer in the child actor bracket. And at that moment, my dance teacher came forward with an opportunity for me to train full time as a trainee assistant dancer. So the time had come for me to decide on my future. Uh, between an uncertain career as an adult actor or my long-desired training as a dance teacher, I can honestly say I've never regretted my decision, and I still enjoy my work after 63 years of teaching. Uh, that is fantastic. I am, like, really happy for her, but I'm kind of sad for us because I'd really like to know <laughs> <laughs> what she could have gone on to do. I'm impressed. I I struggle at my age, you know, to even know what I want to do. So for yeah. somebody at the age of five to know she wanted to be a dance teacher – and stick with and that, it like that. And then do it. I totally agree. I think that's just super remarkable. I'm, I'm actually very impressed. Oh, I, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think at five years old, I think I was doing a, I'm going to be a cowboy. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was going to be a unicorn at that age. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. to have that kind of uh, just stick to itness is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that that's, I mean, that was just kind of like, I was admit I was kind of a little caught off guard trying to come up with questions. So it's one of these things where I really, I'm really sorry that we're so distant as far as time zones and everything. Cause she sounds like someone that'd be a thrill to actually speak with. Cause Absolutely. I kind of, I, I kind of hear all these questions. I was like, okay, I, don't, I want this to stop being an interview and start being a conversation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't feel like I can do her justice, but it's so much fun to read her replies. It is. And I, and I really appreciate her, you know, taking the time to, to answer the questions that I did ask. And Absolutely. I, she certainly didn't need to. She didn't need to reply at all. So it was just uh, it really, really great of her. So I, I thank her very, very much. Absolutely. Thank you. And hopefully she gets a chance to hear this. Yeah, well, she told she asked me to send her a link when it posts. So hopefully oh, she will. Awesome. So maybe she'll listen. Well, if you do, thank you very much. We really appreciate the answers. Well, I guess that will do it for Backroom Boy. I want to thank everybody for listening. This has been uh, always a pleasure and always a pleasure to talk with you, Lydia. Thank you very much. You as well. Uh, I Like I was saying before, I encourage everyone to subscribe. Uh, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and of course the iTunes Store. If you happen to go to any of those, if they have an option to leave a rating or and or a review, we would certainly appreciate it. I haven't checked the iTunes in a while, but I don't think we've gotten any kind of new reviews or ratings for a while. Um, I want to thank everyone who has given us any. Absolutely. So I guess I should actually check and see if we've gotten any. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to guess not, but, you know, whatever. (laughs) 
And of course, uh, join our Facebook group. Just go to facebook.com and search for Orphan Entertainment. And of course, I want to thank everybody that's joined and has posted there. We've actually had a couple interesting articles from a few people and some nice uh, comments from some people that have joined that have discovered the podcast. So I welcome them to the uh, welcome them welcome them to the fold. I hope they continue to enjoy it. So until next month, I guess we will say goodbye. Thank you again, and thank you again, Lydia. Thank you, Christopher. <laughs> All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.